Welcome back, everybody. This is Anthony, and you're going to be gardening with Anthony for about 30 minutes, maybe 45, if I really chew your ear well enough. And I want to hear what you have to say. Well, all right, everybody. So it seems like we've all made it through a rather chilly and incredibly, incredibly long spring. Um, it seems to be heating up a little bit anyway. Um, I feel like I'm starting to unthaw a little bit. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Anthony, and you're going to be gardening with Anthony today. You know, I know you people who know me are probably thinking to yourselves, self, you're thinking, Anthony has always loved carnivorous plants, and I just don't hear him talking much about them anymore. Well, it's true. I haven't talked about them much. Sometimes I feel like I could talk about them forever, and it just dawned on me that I have not done a show on them in about two years. So with that said, what I think we're going to do is, as we're going into June this go-around, let's start thinking about ways to keep ourselves cool, because in July, we're going to hopefully talk about, and we'll keep an eye on the temperatures, on if we can keep our plants cool. So let's first work, uh, worry about keeping ourselves cool and keeping that nice, cool vibe going on in the garden. You know, I'm a big, you know, everybody knows I'm a big fan of water in the garden. Um, I think to hear water splashing, to gaze at fish playing around in the water, to see water lilies, I think all of that is incredibly soothing, as well as I, I honestly believe to a degree, psychologically cooling as well. So what I think would be fun to do is let's kind of start a talk and a dialogue about not just water in the garden, but some really interesting elements of a water garden. And in this particular case, a bog garden. And a bog garden is really going to be an area of your water garden that you have kind of kind of corralled about and you've added soil to it and we're going to put plants in it. So let's kind of back up a little bit uh, and let's get to the water in the garden first. You know, when we put any type of water in our garden, so many things can happen, not the least of which is you get this cool, cool element of surprise that is refreshing, it is um, captivating, it's something really, really nice to lay your eyes on. Um, that also engages tranquility. Of course, who doesn't love to just kind of lie by a nice pond and listen to the water trickle and have this really, really, really almost profound garden moment, if you will. Um, so I hope I'm not being cliche, but, uh, you know, another another thing I really enjoy is the elegance. Uh, I think water gardens are incredibly elegant, or fountains are very elegant. Now, what's fun to do is if you have a fountain that isn't particularly deep, there's so many cool bog plants that we can drop in there, um, not the least of which, of course, everybody knows papyrus, uh, Louisiana iris. I, I do love me some Louisiana iris. But also, well, let's think about things like Saracenias. Saracenias are going to be a pitcher plant. And you probably, if you are avid hikers, it would not surprise me in the least if you've stumbled across a few stands of them in your hiking endeavors. But the flavas are beautiful, beautiful green pitchers. The, the trumpets are going to st can stand up to a foot and a half to two feet tall. They're absolutely regal and majestic. They're and when they they flower, they're just incredibly magnificent. So there's absolutely nothing that you couldn't like about them. 
We also have some really beautiful plants uh, like like Saracenia leucophilas. Those are awfully, awfully beautiful too. I'm going to stick with the varieties here that are hardy because a lot of times we really don't want to invest the money in them and only for them to die. I'm kind of a big advocate because I hate having 40 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever the price of them is. I really hate seeing things like that die and then having to throw it away. It could possibly be that I'm a cheapskate. Um, that is entirely possible. Um, actually, it's probable in my case, but I like to see things come back year after year because I like to, I like to measure progress. So I'm going to stick to some of the hardier varieties for us here. So I really, really do enjoy, I've helped a number of people in the Bellingham area and the Seattle area put together really, really cool uh, water features that feature pitcher plants. And you're going to be amazed how really easy it is. I had a gentleman that was up on Alabama Hill that had a beautiful, beautiful pond. And I remember he used to, he used to astound me. He would come into our nursery and buy a few hundred dollars at a time. And by the way, this is multiple encounters with him of Saracenias and carnivorous plants. Well, it was funny because at some point he invited me over to see his garden. And of course, being completely uh, curious about what is he doing with all of these pitcher plants. Um, I had to take him up on it. Now, it was kind of funny because when I got there, he had them all just kind of in a pan of water. And I thought to myself, okay, uh, that's peculiar, but okay. And then I turned the corner and I saw his water feature, which was an amazing pond with two little water or two little uh, uh, creeks that ran to it, all man-made, of course. And of course, he had koi and all sorts of other things in there. But I looked at him and I said, so you don't want the pitcher plants in the water? And he says, oh, no, actually, I, I did. Um, that's kind of why you're here. <laughs> and I thought, okay, um, sure. So I actually began helping him place them. Now, in fairness, it is fair to say that he was a little handicapped and couldn't really get around very much, but he loved pitcher plants. So we took and we put them all along his stream. And then we created an area on, his, on the bank of one of his, uh, one of the ponds. And what we did is we took a type of mesh that was super fine and I tapped it into corners and made a virtual pocket against one of the walls. And I began filling that with a mixture. Here's where you need to write this down. Good carnivorous soil is three quarters peat moss or cocoa core, whatever you have, and a quarter of very fine perlite. So if you can make this, you've made the very best carnivorous soil ever. So I filled this whole envelope up with them and I began planting for him. This really, really, really turned out well. I got, I have the distinct pleasure of watching years go by. Uh, and by years, I mean about five years, six years go by where these plants just steadily got bigger and bigger and bigger, even to the point where the plants that we just set in the pots along his little rivers, they even had to be repotted because who knew they would grow? 
so we ended up with this really, really, really diverse and interesting collection. And by the time it was all said and done, he had probably about $2,000 worth of carnivorous plants inside his pond. Absolutely amazing. It was beautiful, breathtaking, all of the adjectives I can possibly think of. But what was really nice is that once they were placed, they're done. You don't have to water them and you don't have to feed them. You really just get to sit there and enjoy them and marvel at what they're capable of doing. So putting carnivorous plants in your current existing garden, not really very difficult. We're going to talk in a little bit about how to actually create a garden for it. But for this, uh, for this particular segment, even if you have a small water fountain that is self-contained sitting on your patio, it's such a nice place to take maybe a little bit smaller of a variety and uh, just kind of set it in there. And what you really want to do is if you set the pot in there, just set it in there about two inches in water and it'll be good to go. What's what I really, really think is amazing is that this is such a great opportunity to teach children about these type of plants. Do know that these plants go back several millennia, uh, I think. And, and if I get this wrong, you can write me at uh, askantony at um, outlook.com. But um, I think the Cretaceous or Jurassic is before Cretaceous. So we can actually trace these back to a Jurassic era where all these funneled pitcher plants were actually just leaves. Uh, they they look like any other plant, really. And as time went on, they began to evolve. And when we went from the Jurassic to Cretaceous, then they began funneling and actually being able to, to catch insects. Each step of the way, they grew and grew. Um, there was a part where it developed a sweetness right in the stem of the uh, peristome, which is the uh, lip surrounding the pitcher itself. And of course, that attracts insects, that attracts bees and, and flies and things of that nature, right down to the liquid that it uh, manufactures in the very bottom of the pitcher. That liquid will actually help kill the insect, but it does even more than that. It, it will begin digesting it as well. So these plants are truly amazing and they've evolved over so many years. And it's so cool to let kids see this and understand that millions and millions of years went into creating these absolutely spectacular plants. But, you know, even if you don't have any type of a fountain or for that matter even a pond know that it's so simple to create something really beautiful you know i was with a friend and we went and bought this lovely lovely cobalt blue bowl didn't have any hole in it uh it looked like it could have been maybe a giant salad bowl uh, because it was so large and i could see a giant eating a salad out of it but alas it wasn't a giant salad bowl it's what we what is referred to as a water bowl and so we simply took that. She had a pretty innocuous little stand and we added water to it. And then we began setting plants in there and arranging them, uh, which I thought was really, really, really clever because it was easy to do. It was nothing, nothing um, that was too terribly difficult. 
And what is nice is that when you've got something so simple, then to weather things like that over is even more simple because what she's going to do is she's going to take and dump the water out and take her carnivorous plant and set it into the um, into her kitchen or her uh, basement or her garage or whatnot. Um, I've got a question from one of the viewers here. Um, this is what happens when you get older, folks. You have to wear glasses to read. So it says uh, that when it was hard on many carnivorous plants, is there any way to help the pitcher plant recover from losing all its pitchers? So here's what's kind of really interesting. I'm a big fan at the end of the year, once we know that winter is in fact here, I'm a huge fan of taking and cutting the pitchers down. Um, I love doing that. Now, I'm doing this because I think aesthetically they're beautiful in a vase. And many of them are tall enough to be put in a vase. Here's the caveat, folks. Empty them outside and don't look. Don't look. Just empty them, turn your head. And then when you think it's empty, take a peek. And you can gently wash them out with a, some water or whatnot. Don't look, though. It's really, really gross. I mean, they've been eating all season long. And, you know, they're probably not the neatest eaters on the planet. So we're going to probably uh, probably just kind of. So I recommend taking these. And once we've uh, cleaned them out, how about uh, put them in a brown paper bag, put them in somewhere dark and let them dry very slowly. And then take a little hairspray or some spray uh, uh, type of adhesive and you can actually spray the outside of it and you can keep them for up to a couple of years. It's cheap and they look really, really, they look really cool. So when we're weathering them over, it, it, really we have to take a really close look at, first of all, what we're buying. Saracenia fava, the leucophila and the perps are all really, really, really hardy. They will last you for years. Um, my very first customer when I moved to Bellingham, she, with whom now has moved to the south, but she, I, we created a large boat for her. We took a planter that I had at the nursery and I filled it up with the proper medium and created this really interesting little uh, display of different uh, carnivorous plants. And, you know, it's interesting because I still keep in touch with her and I found it interesting. She actually emailed me about two weeks ago and said, yes, well, things are going well for me here. She says, but I'm selling my boat. Uh, she is also an avid boatswoman. And she says, selling my boat, it's just too much hassle to go up to Bellingham for the summertime boat and whatnot. She says, but all of my carnivorous plants made it to Virginia very, very well. And she was so excited. I guess uh, she's got some neighbors that have never seen these. And now she is virtually a pro at it because we also created a in-ground garden for her as well. And again, we'll get to that here in a moment. But when we mix things in with these, uh, if you have a water bowl, if you have a pond, you know, things like the floating irises make a really, really, really nice, nice additive to it. The irises are particularly fun because as the temperatures warm up, the roots become cobalt blue. So very, very good um, to that young lady with whom emailed me. She had a really great idea. I believe that at this moment in time, we're not really advising a whole lot of folks to do a lot of bird baths. 
bird flu is still kind of a thing, guys. And, you know, and there's nothing sadder than to see the poor babies uh, flop around and, and die. We need all the birds we can get. And let's face it, the big cities are making it hard enough on them. So let's don't add to it. But here's something really fun um, from one of our listeners is, Make them into a container for your carnivorous plants. Set your carnivorous plants in there. You could actually take a really large one, put it in the center, and then surround it by smaller ones. And if you really want to get cheeky, surround it by some sundews. There is a biology project waiting to happen right in your bird bath as we speak. So excellent suggestion. I love I love that people are listening to all this. Um, I, I think that's an amazing idea. And again, if you don't want to do all carnivorous plants, add some things in, add some pickerel rush, um, add in some lizard's tail because all of these are going to flower. They're going to be beautiful and they're going to add to. And well, let's face it. If you put all that in with a carnivorous plant, you're kind of helping the plant a little bit, don't you think? You're attracting bees and insects and then they're like oh hey something smells real sweet over there blah and they fall in but such is the nature uh, the cycle of life i know it probably you know you have to kind of uh, marvel at it i think because the cycle of life is pretty amazing and what i find amazing is that these plants ever even came to be i think they're just remarkable you know here I'm going to do a little side note. I hate doing this because I oftentimes go off onto tangents. But what's really interesting is that we're discovering a lot of different plants are carnivorous. I don't know if you're aware of it. Do you know tomatoes are are, are being classified as carnivorous at this point? Little small um, gnats get to them, stick to them, and the plant is learning how to digest them and how to metabolize them. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Also... Well, for any of you who smoke marijuana, do know that next time you pop a bud into your into your bowl, you might want to wonder exactly what's going on there, because we all know how sticky that is, or maybe all of us don't know, but insect flies into it, gets stuck, and then it just grows right over it. So yeah, next time you light up, it's definitely something to think about. There's so many other plants, though, that are are absolutely amazing that we're starting to learn about. So keep your eye out and key and watch. I think it's marvelous. Uh, if you're familiar with the bromeliad, uh, bromeliads, they're also carnivorous. Uh, we always like to water those right in the very center because it's called a, pit, a, a vase plant. And so we water right in the center and insects get into there and they are metabolized. So it appears that life continues to evolve and expand to encompass all sorts of fantastic uh, other plants that, you know, who knows, at one point we never would have thought of. So other things that we can kind of do, I did this for a client in Seattle one year. We took some small containers that had no holes in them that were the same size as the pots of water plant, of uh, pitcher plants that we had. And we added them and we put those all around her deck. It was a very, very interesting look, uh, almost, if you will, a bit regal. They were in full sun. They were beautiful. And frankly speaking, I think these work way better than a citronella plant. Citronella plants, in my opinion, I've never had much much success with them as far as shooing mosquitoes away. 
But when I have carnivorous plants, they always seem to find something far sweeter than me to chew on. And that's usually the plant. And then they end up becoming the one chewed on. So if you really do want to kind of control that whole insect thing going on there, um, I would give some of these carnivorous plants a shot. Other plants that are fun to play with, and I, I and kids love these, uh, Venus flytrap, the Dionias. They're really, really interesting. And boy, I tell you what, when these were created, you just have to marvel at them because anybody who has ever had one knows that you can't just spring the trap. What has to happen is there are five to seven hairs inside these traps. And so if an insect lands on one and he triggers one, the plant thinks to itself, this could be a piece of debris. This could be a leaf. So it will wait for 20 seconds. And once another one gets tripped, then it shuts. These plants have some kind of a consciousness. There is an intelligence to them. And while we don't necessarily understand the intelligence, it is awe-inspiring to say the absolute least. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by, uh, by uh, uh, fly traps. And what's cool is that right now they're really starting to grow some very interesting varieties now. Some of them that look like they've got snaggle teeth instead of the uh, fine little, uh, little prawns. Um, some of them that have no prawns whatsoever. So there's some really, really, really interesting varieties. If you want to kind of peruse some of them, you can go to California Carni uh, Carnivores and uh, kind of go through their website. They have a fantastic website that you can kind of play around with. Um, if you want some really, really, really beautiful uh, Saracenias, I recommend Courting Frog um, down in Snohomish County. Courting Frog is probably one of the greatest secrets in the entire Western Washington, if not the West Coast. Uh, that is ran by a dear friend of mine, Jerry Addington, who has dedicated his entire life to these carnivorous plants and has, is considered one of the top world's top authorities on them, as well as a top breeder. He's bred some that are truly beautiful. Now, in fairness, some of the uh, hybrid varieties aren't necessarily as hardy, so they're for the diehard collector who wants to bring them inside and stick them under lights. But all of that said, he has got such an amazing collection, and you can pick up his goods at places like My Garden Nursery, as well as uh, Garden Spot. They all carry Jerry's plants, and worth buying they're pacific northwest grown by somebody who loves carnivorous plants and i gotta tell you if you buy uh, carnivorous plants from a place that has basically an assembly line um there and there are some nurseries out there like that the plants aren't near as healthy they're not near as robust where jerry's are exceptionally hardy and robust and he never lets them go until they have a very specific look to them so in any case, other things that I really, really, really enjoy um, doing with uh, some of my water pl uh, water plant or mixing water plants with um, Saracenias and things like that is I like to put them in a little bit more uncommon places. Uh, I've taken a silver bowl that may I may have bought from an antique store and filled it with water and actually created a very cool 
scene for it by putting my plants in, filling it with water, but then I stuff in some live moss all the way around it, and I let some of the moss hang down. It's a really beautiful centerpiece, and it's something that's a little bit um, surprising. People are not as as used to things like that. People are used to a thing of flowers or a candle, but this is something a little bit different, and it's very, very, very useful. I love to uh, I love to play with uh, things like fountains when we uh, when we uh, have have water gardens because when we start moving the water around a little bit now we're attracting a whole different type of insect. Um, oftentimes those are that's when we're going to get some of those pesty little mosquitoes and some certain types of flies that are really attracted to uh, to water. So, and even certain types of stinging ones that are attractive to water, it's just kind of nice to be able to have them out there and help mitigate uh, some of the insects. And it helps us enjoy either our yards, our decks, or whatever you have. It helps us enjoy those just a little bit more. I'm a real big fan also of mixing some of the more tropical varieties in with some of these hardier ones. Nepenthes are a really, really cool plant. We get these from Borneo. Um, well, it's in Borneo, and there's a whole bunch of other places. Uh, Papua New Guinea has them. But they're in many different shapes and sizes. Again, California, the website for California carnivorous plants has a host of them that they're going to show you online. Some of these are just being discovered because really when it comes to all these pitcher plants, we're really just, we're babies at this so far. There are so many more that need to be explored and, and discovered because once they discover them, they can take them and begin propagating them in a greenhouse. And then people like you and I can enjoy them. So Anthony, what does that take when we start talking about tropical? Okay. It's going to be get a little bit more involved but really not too terribly much. I feel like if you were to get on Amazon and buy yourself a LED grow light, you are golden. Typically when I've had them, I'm one of these people that LED grow light, I can't, my eyes don't like it. So I have to put those behind a door and not see it because otherwise my eyes will start freaking out. But what's paramount aside from light is moisture level in the air, humidity. So one of the things that I do is every single time I walk by that, I have a mister bottle sitting inside. I mist everybody down. If we if they don't get enough mist, then ultimately what happens is that they stop pitching. And if they begin creating a pitcher and then it dries out, then you'll see a little black nub on it. And it's basically an infant pitcher that has dried up. So really what we need to do is add a lot more moisture into the air and they will do exceptionally well. Now, if you do, if you are one of these lucky people that happen to have a nice little waterfall in your backyard, I, if anybody who was with me the last year I was at my garden nursery, I had a Nepenthes that a, one of my clients gave me, stop picturing for them. And that new water feature that we put in the back, I put it right up by the water feature. And I tell you, in a couple of months, I had more pictures than I knew what to do with. So that's actually a really cool idea. They can take a lot of sun as long as they're really, really, really staying damp and moist. I tend to like to water my Nepenthes every single day. They do not get to sit in water. That is not going to make them happy. But they do like to be watered daily. 
in Bellingham, you're very, very lucky that you have such great water because I would try feed mine tap water every morning and they are really, really good. Of course, when you have a pond handy, probably don't need quite as much water because it's going to be splashing water at it constantly, which is really what you want. You want to see those leaves stay wet. Um, that way they start pitching and they begin. And what's cool is that if you've got other plants in the pond, a lot of those little bits will begin fertilizing this plant as well. So it's almost that you've developed a symbiotic relationship. The only caveat is, is that in fall, we need to pull these all in. Now, when we decide to start pulling things in, I need everybody to write on your calendar. I'm going to give you two seconds to get a calendar ready. Ready? One, two. Good. August 1. I want you to get all those plants that you put outside or all the plants that got to come indoors. Get that on your radar. What I want you to do is all your plants need to be given a systemic insecticide. I know there's those of you who don't like chemicals. I get it. I get it. I get it. But sometimes you need medicine. And when we, what happens when we pull plants inside? We usually infest the world with our insects. Mother Nature keeps her checks and balances. We do this with uh, some of our, uh, our Saracenias as well. And I do it with the Nepenthes as well. Yeah, I put a little bit of a, a, a systemic inside the soil, water it in. The plant's going to take it up and it's going to begin coursing through the plant. Now, long about September 1, I want you to bring your plants in. I don't want you to wait until during the daytime it feels cool and, oh, maybe I should bring them in. I want 3 o'clock in the morning to be just as comfortable outside as it is inside. The reason being is that when we pull our plants in and we wait until during the daytime it's cool, we're not even thinking about what the plant's doing at night. And so we bring them in and they're going to go through a furnace. Bringing them in at September 1, we've absolutely mitigated and kind of navigated through that whole thing beautifully. I bring in my Nepenthes at that time and I never seem to miss a beat. They are, they continue to grow. They're back under light. And of course, by that time, um, the light has been just beginning to wane anyway, or that's when we're starting to notice it a little bit more. So remember that when we are bringing these things in, we really want to kind of keep an eye on them. We want to keep checking, uh, looking at them, inspecting them pretty thoroughly. Now for your plants, your Saracenias that are hardy, typically speaking, I would tell you, leave them in the water. They're going to be just fine. The caveat to that is that I feel like if there's any super extreme weather, which, you know what, you guys are getting extreme weather all of a sudden. Uh, let's hear it for global warming, folks. When there is extreme weather, I'm going to recommend that if you have the ability to go ahead and put them in a garage. Now, the fact of the matter is, is I have had mine in an apartment for many, many years and I leave mine outside pretty much year-round, uh, the hardy ones, and they seem to do quite well. They, they've never gone belly up yet, but now most of these can go down to about minus 10, minus 20 degrees. But when it comes to our tropical friends, like the Nepenthes, then we really, really want to be proactive when it comes to bringing these bad boys in, because... We don't want to throw them through shock. We want to kind of have a nice, mellow, 
transition. Um, let's also talk about some of the other plants that are a lot of fun too, um, like things like uh, cephalotuses. Um, cephalotus is indigenous to Australia, so it's very, very accustomed to very hot weather. Now, cephalotus is a really tiny little pitcher plant, and it is meant to eat things like ants and little uh, little crawling um, bugs. And if you get, ever have the opportunity, and if you go onto the uh, website for California Carnies, um, you can check out what a cephalotus looks like. If you get a good, good blown up view of it, it looks like an absolutely fierce plant. It, I mean, it looks like it has fangs. It looks like it can eat something. And then, of course, you pan out, and it's like the size of a quarter. Um, it's just these lovely little uh, pictures, and they're really quite beautiful. But keep in mind that they're a little bit, um, they're a little bit easier to forget about. Um, because they are so small. So we do want to make sure that they eat well. If, um, I keep mine indoors and I have to feed it by hand. Um, I refer to it as my child because I feel like a mother feeding her bird. Um, but this, kind of like all the other plants, keeping in mind, they all of them like a lot of light. Uh, some of the Nepenthes you can get away with, with dappled light. Um, but if you have it by water, uh, that thing can take quite a lot of sunlight. I like to, when I bring them indoors, I like to get them back on about a 16-hour uh, light regimen. Um, because in their, in their natural world, that's exactly what they would be getting. There's also a number of people who have the theory that they stop feeding in the wintertime. I want to impress upon you that these plants do not understand winter. Uh, they come from an area that winter doesn't exist. And while there's a lot of debate about house plants in the same fashion, I still maintain these plants do not understand winter. They still need to be fed. Now, are they going to utilize as much? Probably not. But they don't go dormant in their native area. They are um, very much growing year round. And so consequently, I tend to continue to uh, fertilize, just maybe not quite as much because many plants are photoactive, which means that they're responding to how much sun is out there. And so they can slow down. Um, I have had people have literally tell me that they've got spathophyllums um, or peace lilies that bloom in the wintertime. You know what, Mine's, mine just now is starting to come back into bloom. It bloomed most of last winter and it seemed to have taken a bit of a break. And I can, as I look over now, I can see that it is uh, pushing out a couple more flowers. Means are pretty happy. And I, I think that's kind of a cool thing. Um, I really, really want to encourage you to play around and to experiment with as many different carnivorous plants as you can get. Now, I, I will always encourage you to shop locally, uh, my garden as well as Garden Spot. Um, I don't believe, I'm not positive if Kent carries any or not, but I would certainly tap all of your immediate sources. But when you can't find something, there is nobody better than California Carnies. Now, if they tell you, oh, we can't send to you right now, listen to them because they know what they're talking about. 
but I've ordered from a number of places on online and they're the only people with whom I got the box and I didn't have to say to myself some, some assembly required because plant pot and soil are all in different areas. These guys were really, really good. They knew how to, how to batten things down where it came to you intact. Their prices are really, really good. And these guys are experts. So with all of that said, you have been gardening with me now for years. And I want you to remember, tune in to me um, every first Wednesday of every month. And I want to be able to give you relevant gardening information on not just the stuff that you're all familiar with, but some of the more unusual things, as well as some unusual techniques on gardening. Um, right here on KPNW DB. I love your questions. Be sure to write me and ask me what you've got and at askantony at outlook.com. I love you guys so much. I cannot wait to make a return visit to Washington State because it will be so much fun. And I want to see every one of you and talk to you all and give you a hand with what you're doing in your gardens. So for now, have an awesome, awesome June. And uh, hey, happy Pride to all you, uh, all you Pride people out there. Bye, guys.